So speaking of prayer and stated values being actual values, Paul was a deep man of prayer. So last week we started this uh, series, Keys to Colossians. I got about halfway through chapter one. We're going to do rest of chapter one and hopefully chapter two and see how far, far we get in this. But I talked about verses nine um, through 12 about Paul's, what I call the blueprint uh, prayer. And so I got through that, but I want to talk about the four-part worthy test that Paul really goes into. So he says, I'm praying for you guys. So the church of Colossae uh, was under immense attack to try to pull them away from pure and simple devotion to Jesus. Sound familiar? It's why I love the Feast of Tabernacles. It's a chance to say, we're not going to be pulled away. In our intentionality, we're going to set our hearts to seek and pursue the Lord above all things. So Paul's saying, I'm going to pray. I pray that you would be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. But why? And he says, so that you may walk worthy of the Lord. Sometimes we want the knowledge of God's will so we're less miserable. Paul wants you to have the knowledge of God's will so that you would walk worthy of this God-man we've been worshiping all, all morning. So that you would walk, and worthy doesn't mean this performance or rituals or rules. It means you line up, you see his worth, and suddenly you arise to go, it's about him, not about me. So to walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, that we would bring him pleasure in all things, and then I want to look at these four ways um, that we can uh, walk worthy of the Lord. So the four-part worthy test. So we can ask ourselves these questions. Are my hands bearing godly fruit? You were made to produce good fruit in the earth. And I love it. We're very focused on we're not made to just do. We're, we are beers. We are called to know God in the depths of who we are. We are before we do. But guess what? We never stop it. Just we are. We're destined to do great exploits in the earth. You are on this earth to not only love God, but out of that overflow of love to do great and mighty exploits in this earth. And so to ask the question, Am I manifesting the great worth of this God-man Jesus by my hands producing fruit? Is there fruit, when people look at my life, is there fruit there? That's the part one of the four-part worthy test. The second one, we ask, is my mind growing in the knowledge of God? And that doesn't mean, obviously, we know that doesn't mean academic knowledge it doesn't mean head knowledge. It means when it means love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's all of those things synthesized because, again, Greek mindset always compartmentalizes and synthesizes. Hebraic mindset is very holistic. It's very integrated and synthesized. So when he says, is your mind growing in the knowledge of God, it means are you growing in intimacy? Do you really know him? Do you have a desire to know him, to grow in understanding who he is? The third one we don't talk about a lot, especially in the charismatic church, is my life resilient and patient? We're in like fast food culture. We want it now. We want it quick. We want answers. We want results. Produce, produce, produce. But not so in the eternal kingdom of God. 
Paul says, I'm, I, I want you to grasp this, that you're going to need to have this resiliency because pressure will come, persecution will come, problems will come, but it's uh, producing this patient waiting upon the Lord so that you learn to not give up so that you learn to not back down, to not give in. Paul is laboring like a woman in childbirth, saying, I want you to learn to be resilient in the faith. I want you to learn to be patient in all of these things that are coming, that you would not turn your back on God when the first little whim uh, of resistance comes. And then the last one, it's becoming one of my favorite topics right now, is my heart full of joyful gratitude. Paul goes after thanksgiving and gratitude uh, in all of his letters. It's over and over. It's almost in every chapter you can read Paul exhorting the saints to give thanks, to be plumb lined back to gratitude because he understands how much it has to do with connection with the Lord. He says, is your heart full of joyful gratitude. So the four-part worthy test. We're going to move on. He then goes on to say, he just preaches the gospel to them. I love Paul because they've been getting the gospel for years now through Epaphras, who's a great, he was a great shepherd, a great leader. But Paul's like, let me just state it one more time. Do you know you can't hear the gospel enough? If your heart is not pricked every time you I'm going to say something, probably I'm going to get some people mad at me, okay? If your heart is not pricked every time you hear the gospel, you're probably backslidden. Do you know what backsliding is? It means like God is here, you're in union, you're in connection. It means one step away is too far. Okay, and I'm not being legalistic at all, but your life is about connection with the God who loves you who gave his son as a means to connect you, to bond you, to attach you to his heart. And so uh, if your heart is not moved every time you hear the gospel, then ask him to reconnect you with the beauty of this story. So Paul lays it out. He tells him, you guys have heard it over and over, but I'm going to say it this way. Jesus has delivered us from the power of darkness, and he has conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. This is good news. Verse 13 and 14 is our story. It's like, this is why you should give thanks. This is what you've been invited to. You have been delivered. You and I were stuck. You and I were enemies we were far away, we had no hope, we could not save ourselves, we were destined for hell and separation, eternal torment, and Jesus came from heaven and he delivered us from all that demonic mess and power, and I love this word conveyed. It's like, imagine we were here, I can't move myself, and God just picks me up and puts me on this conveyor belt, and I moved effortlessly over here. The conveyor is the work of the Holy Spirit. He moves us from the darkness into the kingdom, and I love this phrase, into the kingdom of the son of his love. You've not just been moved into a kingdom. You have been moved into the kingdom of the beloved son. 
the son of his love. It's a Hebraic, Hebraic phrase. I just love that the father gets to say that about the son. The father looks at the son and said, this is the one I'm well pleased. He's the son of my love. And then he preaches the gospel again in verse 14. Through Jesus, you have redemption. So the word redemption means it's the legal price of release. You had a bounty on your head for what you had done. This for being born into sin. There was a bounty on your head, and the enemy had legal right to destroy you, to claim you, but God. And Jesus redeemed you. He paid back everything, the highest price. How valuable is your life if God agreed to give his only son, the priceless one? You are priceless. You have such value and worth. So this legal price of release through the blood. I just want to say something about the blood. And I love that we're doing communion weekly now. May it never grow old. May we connect every, the same way with the gospel. May our hearts be pricked every time we take the body and the blood of Jesus. May this actually keep us in intimacy coming to the table weekly. The blood of Jesus, plead the blood equals showing the receipt that you've been bought. All you have to say when the devil comes and he taps on me a lot, he taps on you a lot. Sometimes it sounds a lot like our own, our own voice. Not good enough, loser, whatever. I just pull out that receipt, I, and it just has one, there's two words on it, the blood. And it silences the accuser of the brethren. It shuts it down. You don't have to shunda the law and beat your fist and stomp your feet and just do twirl three times and shake it off. You just say the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus is enough to silence every foe on planet earth and in the heavenly realms. The blood. No wonder the enemy is trying to sideline the blood of Jesus and to get us to not talk about the gospel, the cross, the blood of Jesus. It's what they were doing to the church of Colossae. Paul just brings it right back to the gospel. We're never leaving the blood. We're never leaving the cross. Yes, it's finished. It's done. But we will forever testify of what it cost Jesus to set us free and convey us from death into life. It's such good news. Through the forgiveness of sins. I love that. The forgiveness, that word there in the Hebraic, it means it got sent way far away. It got shipped off so far, it can never reach us back again. Imagine your junk, your sin, gets put into this little train car. Mine was big. Big train car just heaped up in there. I love Jen always does this. Fear, bye-bye. Bye-bye, sin, mess, bye-bye. That thing goes away, and it goes so far, it can never reach you again in your lifetime. Just goes into the sea of forgetfulness. It will never reach you again. Now, the enemy will lie and tell you that it can, can remind you. That's where the blood comes back in. The blood silences all accusation and uh, makes it clear there's no warrants out for your arrest with God. He has this covered. Okay, so let's do my favorite part now. I just want to brag on Jesus. 
I feel like this is what I was put on earth for. If I have any prophetic gifting in me at all, this is it. That's uh, Revelation 19. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony means what he's done. It's what he's doing, but also what he's done. The gospel is the prophetic storyline. The gospel is the prophetic spirit. So Paul lays out to the church in Colossae this clear view of Jesus. It reminds me of Song of Solomon, chapter 5, where the Shulamite, the bride, who's a picture of us, says, oh, let me tell you about my beloved. You think I'm offended? You have no idea who he is and what he looks like. He's incredible. Paul does what Song of Solomon 5 is in the the Old Covenant. This is what uh, Colossians 1 is here when Paul goes into this incredible hymn. It's the supremacy of Christ over all creation. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the exact photo snap. You don't have to guess what the Father's character and personality is like. You have it in Jesus Christ. If anyone tries to give you a Father or a Yahweh God that doesn't look like Jesus, reject it. If anyone tries to give you a gospel that is different from the one Jesus showed through his life, reject it. He is the image of the invisible God. See, here's the problem. The controversy in Colossae is not so different from the controversy we're having in the U.S. and in the Western church right now. The controversy was there were the Gnostics, there were the uh, Jewish mystics, there were uh, the Judaizers, there were all these branches, and they somehow mingled into this one demonic package which began to attack the church in Laodicea and Colossae to try to get them away from pure and simple devotion to Jesus. It was trying to, again, the same with the church in Galatia, to bewitch them, to move them away from Jesus. So Paul lays it out. And so they were trying to say, you don't really need Jesus. I have the, so the Gnostics, the word uh, Gnosis means special hidden knowledge or information that only the elite get. If you, so can I just, I'm going to go on a bunny trail about toxic prophetic real quick, because I am passionate about this. Any church community, any culture that tries to, uh, have a level of the prophetic that makes certain people elevated and that they are the only ones who can hear from God and that everyone must submit to that. Thank you. Um, I see that river of blood coming. Uh, Just that is not where this body is headed. Okay, everyone gets to do this stuff. If you are in Christ, you are his sheep. You get to hear his voice. You get to prophesy. It's not this hierarchical special thing. Now, I believe there are offices of prophets. There are strong prophetic giftings. But I believe the office of prophet is just so we can raise up hundreds of others. It's about multiplication. It's not about the Gnostics. Gnosticism is still alive and well in the church, and it wants to uh, develop this I'm special and you're not. It's really based in pride. Special hidden knowledge. And I'm going to get this, get to this in chapter 2. But guess what? There is no greater secret, hidden, powerful revelation than this, Christ. 
I wish Gary Fry were here to hear this. He'd be so happy. There's no greater secret knowledge than Jesus Christ, period. I said this last week. This is the big idea. Jesus, period. Nothing added, nothing subtracted. Jesus. And yet even in current, modern, unhealthy prophetic culture, because I am all about the flow of the Holy Spirit and the gifts in operation, but we are passionate about health. Unhealthy will uh, make, make it a us for and no more. Instead of empowering and equipping the saints that we all get to hear his voice and be with him. Are you with me on that? So Paul lays it out. There's no, no one greater than Jesus. The Gnostics we're trying to say, yeah, there's Jesus, but there's actual, actually angels. Their argument was, I have this special secret information. There are angels greater than Jesus. Doctrine of demons. So he's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth. He's still preaching the gospel here. He's telling us about who Jesus is because the Gnostics and the Judaizers and the, the uh, mystics, they were all trying to say it's Jesus plus this or Jesus minus this. He's like, what are you talking about? It's Jesus, period. Jesus is all in all in all. He's everything. There's no one greater than Jesus. He says, I don't care if it's thrones or dominions. I don't care how powerful you are. I don't care what your title is, uh, principalities or powers. All things were created through him, by him, for him. Everything was created through Jesus. It says, and he is before all things. Uh, some of the uh, Jewish mystics were saying, yeah, Jesus came much later. He wasn't around for creation. He wasn't around in the beginning and so they're really weakening the power of the basics of the, the Jewish faith in, in the early uh, foundations of Christianity. And Paul just lays it out. He was there before all things. And in him, all things consist. So Jesus is fully God. Jesus isn't just part God. He is fully God. He's full deity. He's not just a gift. He's not just a good idea. He is God in the flesh. He's the sustainer of everything. So he's supreme over creation, but guess what? He's also supreme over the new creation. He's the head of the body. Oh my gosh, I have the best boss in the entire universe. He's the head of you and I. Guys, we don't have to worship any leader. If any leader gets you to try to worship them and, and serve them in a way that pulls the spotlight off of Jesus, that is not what Jesus gave his blood for. The Father wants everyone following the head. Now, we have many under shepherds and servant leaders to do the work, but it's all under the headship of Jesus Christ, who is the beginning the firstborn from the dead. Now, so at the beginning, he was looking at Jesus who was before creation. Now it's Jesus who came uh, and he rose from the dead that in all things he may have preeminence. Christ and Christ alone is the heart of the gospel. If anyone tries to give you a gospel that is uh, predominantly about your good works, 
or about any other ism, flee. Or better yet, really, really sharpen, sharpen your word on the inside and plead with them. Plead with them to go on a journey of discipleship, of heart discipleship, and see how excellent Jesus is in all things. Okay, next one. He's reconciled in Christ. For it pleased the Father that in him, in Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. And by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. This is the master plan. God chose Jesus to reconcile heaven and earth, to make it brought together. The reason why we're so huge on let heaven come, heaven has already come because Jesus has been on this earth 33 years. He was the portal. He was the open heavens. And then he sent Holy Spirit to the church. And now that open portal is in you and I. We don't have to fight. I do love, I think it's such a mystery. There are things that open up in the spirit realm. But there's nothing greater than you and I being an open portal for heaven to flow and come. In Walmart, at the gas station, your family reunion, in your job tomorrow at 9 a.m. with your first cup of coffee. You can be an open heaven right there in the midst of it. So the fullness should dwell. That word dwell, I just want to look at it real quick. It means a permanent structure. When Jesus came, he set up a permanent structure through the power of the Holy Spirit that will never go away. So we see that in the book of Revelation. The dwelling place of God is now with men, and he's reconciled. Verse 21, and again, he goes right back to the gospel. You who were once alienated, so alienated means you were transferred uh, to another owner. You were, you were owned by this enemy. You were alienated, and then you were transferred into this kingdom of the son of his love. It says you were enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh. The reason he says in his flesh, because some of the Gnostics are saying, Jesus never died on the cross. Do you know there is a strong gospel right now, a false gospel narrative that's moving, uh, especially the, in the emergent church, it's moving millennials away from uh, belief that the Bible is the real, true inspired word of God, but that um, saying that the, uh, the death and resurrection is just uh, allegory. If it's allegory, we're all lost, guys. If it's myth and just a way to live good, there's no hope. But that is a lie. This is what is true. He, so he says, in the body of his flesh, Jesus was a real man and experienced a real death. Let's make it clear. What we see at the end of every, all four of the Gospels, really happened. Okay, they executed our Lord and Savior, Jesus. He was buried. On the third day, he defeated death, hell, and the grave. And he rose to the right hand of his Father forever. So you have all these voices. Guys, we have these growing voices in the church trying to move us away from these basic elementary foundations of the gospel to get us to do something easier, more palatable, and flashier. 
says to present you holy and blameless, above reproach in his sight. Indeed, if you continue in the faith. Paul makes it clear, guys, this is conditional. God is going to present you faultless, blameless, holy, but you must persevere in the faith. Guys, there is such a thing as the great falling away. There really is. And now there's, uh, if we got 100 people in this room right now, there's 100 different views of eschatology, I promise you, of what's going to happen at the end. All of you probably believe different things. Paul's clear. Peter's clear. It's, there's something called the great falling away that we've not even seen the likeness of yet, where many, because of fear, will renounce their faith. Their hearts will grow cold. Believers will walk away. Paul was dealing with that spirit of Antichrist. Even then in the church, we are still dealing with that thing to convince us it's a slippery slope. You're seeing it uh, on the headlines, Christian headlines, about how many leaders are walking away and renouncing their faith. How many leaders from 20 years ago are right now in the last year? I can't tell you. I know five major leaders who have renounced their faith. They've walked away from historic uh, Christianity. They've walked away, and they're following the, they're following the Gnostics. They're following the mystics. They're following the Judaizers, some other brand except for the pure, simple gospel of Jesus. So this is hugely relevant for us. This last section, Paul talks about his suffering for the church. I can't believe that Paul, it it is so humbling to hear him say, I actually rejoice in suffering for your sake. Talking about uh, dealing with self-centered religion. Paul was so beautiful at saying, this is not about me and what I get out of this. I will gladly spend and be spent on your behalf. I will gladly lay my life down. I'll be a poured out drink offering. It's about Jesus receiving receiving his reward in the earth. He says, I'm going to rejoice in my sufferings because my sufferings aren't for me. They're for you. What's he talking about? He's in prison for saying Jesus is God. He's suffering, he's cold, he's hungry, he's been abused, he's been mistreated over and over, and he's counting it all loss. He's like, I count it all joy, really. You and I can move to that level when we suffer. Right now, it's hard enough when someone asks, can you help set up for this meal? It feels like angst in our flesh. Can you imagine the days that are coming of persecution that already Iran is going through, China has been going through for 40 years now, Hong Kong is in the midst, the beginning wave of this, and here we are, we get offended if we say, would you mind stepping over there so you don't hit someone with that flag, Uh, would you please help us set up for this meal, and it's like our flesh doesn't want to do it, rejoice, rejoice rejoice that you get to help the church move ahead into glory, whatever that looks like. He says, I want to fill up in my flesh what's lacking in the affliction of of Christ. Let me hit on that real quick, and I'm going to move on to chapter 2. Paul is not saying Jesus didn't do it all. Let me make it clear. When he says, fill up in my flesh the afflictions of Christ, he's not being weird. Uh, uh, There's not a weird dogma saying, I must beat myself you know, hurt myself. It's not asceticism, which was another problem happening 
uh, in Colossae, meaning the harder I hurt myself, the holier I will become because the flesh is entirely bad and corrupt. And so I'm only spirit. No, your body, soul, spirit, heart, mind, the Lord created it all, loves it all, wants to redeem it all for glory. Paul is saying for its ministry affliction he's talking about. What is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Do you know there is a suffering to be in leadership and ministry? It's glorious, let me tell you. I tell Tom every week, this is still my favorite job after 30 years. I have the best job in the whole world. I love it, but I have borne a weight of suffering because of dealing with the level of sin in the church and my own brokenness. Because if you have my brokenness, touch your brokenness, then we have a mess waiting to happen. But I've chosen leadership. I've chosen servant leadership. I've stepped, I said yes to the call of God. As many, right now I'm doing a leadership class here. We have 20 people in our leadership class here on Wednesdays. It has been so amazing. The Lord is doing something. And it's all about preparing for revival uh, is the theme and really servanthood, laying down our lives for the body, for Jesus. So Paul's saying, man, for this sake of ministry, I am filling up and I'm doing it so that you would be presented blameless before the Lord. I love that October is Pastors Appreciation Month. This is not a plug for us. This is a plug for all the other leaders in this room. Let them know. And some of you, we all dabble in other churches. I love it because here I am a senior leader, but I am also a part of Overflow. My best friend is the pastor of Indy Vineyard. And uh, I mean, I just love, I love the body in this region. So we're all double, triple dipping sometimes. And I'm really happy that we are the unified body of Christ and not territorial and not into tribal, an unhealthy tribalism. Um, so I have no idea where I was going with that. I think it was good. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and move into chapter 2. Chapter 2. So Paul says this, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea, their sister church, for all who have not met me personally. Again, Paul had never met uh, the, the, the church from Colossae or Laodicea. And so he's, this is the object of his concern. So that word contending, guys, is an interesting word. It's like doubled over in like uh, the groan of intercession. It's just not a simple prayer. It means I'm like doubled over, almost like in birth pains, uh, groaning in intercession to see Christ formed in the church. And he's like, I am in this contending mode. I'm in this prayer contending mode for you. Uh, and so why is he contending? Why Some of the uh, uh, versions uses the word conflict. Like there's this wrestle over uh, what's happening there. The purpose of it is found in verse 2. This is why I'm contending. My goal is that the church may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that, so I'm going to stop there for a minute. The purpose of Paul's concern is this. Number one, he wants the church filled with courage. Why does the church need courage? They were beginning to lack in courage because they had the Gnostics, the uh, mystics, uh, and they had the Judaizers, and they had the ascetics, the Essenes, who were saying, just beat yourself harder and get rid of the flesh and you'll be okay. Four streams coming at them saying, change the gospel. 
change the story, change the narrative, shift your focus. And you have this church. I imagine the, this was a house church, uh, probably most scholars believe 75 to 100. So a, a church of about our, our size, about 100 people gathering in Philemon's house, who was a wealthy man. So he had large, probably, uh, they had courtyards and big rooms where they would gather. So this was a big house church. This was a big, small group. And so they have all this pressure to, to uh, conform to these people. And Paul's not there as a father. He's not there. And he's saying to them, I'm praying that you stick this and that you're not moved to conform to any of these other streams that are coming in. So courage. I tell you, I'm praying this every day now with the, uh, the militant homosexual agenda that's in the church. And I... Man, I understand brokenness more than most. I understand struggles with identity. But I also understand this. There is a demonic assignment to uh, change, change the uh, focus of the church from Jesus onto flesh. And it's not just that agenda. It's immorality. So let's talk about adultery in this church, can we? And adultery, uh, can't even touch adultery without touching pornography. That 65% of the church weekly looks at uh, pornography. Can we take the mask off and go there? Paul was dealing with that level of stuff. So it's very relevant. So every day as a papa in this place, I'm praying. I am, I am in conflict for you. I am wrestling for you, for your greatness, that you would have courage to not bend to the spirit and the wine of this age, but that you would be overflowing with love. So here's the thing. You can get courage and you can be mean as hell. You can get a little courage and you can say the rudest, meanest things and not express the heart of Christ. That's the balance with where we're going uh, with those bringing in. Because the Lord has said uh, those struggling with sexual identity are coming, with gender issues. They're coming, and we must be a safe place to speak the truth in love. And by all means, we have to get some power on our lives to get demons off of people's backs so that they can hear and receive. So Paul says, courage. And then he says that you'd be united in love, unity under the banner of love. Unity, not courage isn't enough in this hour, guys. Courage could just make you a really loud, clanging symbol. You need courage, unity, and love. Say it with me. It's like lion, tigers, and bears. Courage, unity, and love. Oh, my, this is what we need. This is what we need in this hour. So that, why do we need courage, unity, and love? So that we would have the full riches of complete understanding in order that we may know the mystery of God. Here it is, ta-da! Everyone wanting to know the huge mystery, the secret of the universe. Here it is, Christ. It is so offensive to the proud and the so-called wise of this world. It offended so many Paul was dealing with. You're telling me this Jewish carpenter, he's the secret of the universe? He's the God man? 
He was from Nazareth. He was born out of a scandal. You're telling me he's the secret knowledge of everything? Yes. That's why you must be like a child to receive it. You must be born again. Flesh tells you that you are big enough, you are strong enough to do it on your, your own. The gospel has come like a little child. Lay everything else down and believe Jesus is the Son of God. He came. He gave his life away. In Jesus, whom are hidden all the treasures in wisdom and knowledge. This is the greatest. This is the greatest secret in knowledge. Paul says, this is the reason why Paul's concerned. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Paul's like, I'm preaching in weakness, guys. It sounds... Crazy to get up here and tell a church of 100 in 2019, Jesus. Like, man, I've been hearing this since I've been saved for 40 years. I've been hearing this my whole life. Jesus, we need to hear it every day. Jesus, nothing added, nothing subtracted. It says, because there's a, a proneness to give into deception because people will come in with fine-sounding things. I can't tell you the stuff that shoots up on my, on, uh, my Facebook uh, as I'm streaming through Facebook. It is so deceptive what is out there in this age to pull people away from pure and simple devotion to Jesus. Add this, take away that. Paul's just saying freedom from enticing words. The gospel in one word is Christ. It says, for though I'm absent from you in body, I'm present with you in spirit. Meaning, I pray for you guys a ton. Paul's like, man, you are on my heart. I'm sitting here in this prison cell. I'm so full of joy. This is my 24-7 prayer room. I am now an I, uh, IHOP Rome staff member because I'm enforced exile, and I'm in this prayer room, and I am with you in spirit because I'm praying for you. I'm united in heart. We're, we're spirit made for spirit. I don't have to be with my best friend Tom in Dallas to be united with him in spirit. We're, one, we're in spirit together because we pray for one another. We connect as friends. It says, I'm present with you. Delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. I love that Paul just starts out so solid. He speaks original design. He's like, you guys are not going to fall for this. Let me tell you, well, you are not going to fall for those enticing voices that want you to jump through hoops and do all these other things to be holy. Christ. Says, so just as you receive Jesus Christ as Lord, continue. Just keep going. It's like, what's the answer, Brother Marvin? Just keep doing the basic gospel. Keep going. It says, continue to live your, lives in, live your lives in him, rooted, built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught. And here we go again. What does it say? Overflowing with thankfulness. So we're right back at gratitude. It, the heart of a healthy church will be gratitude and thankfulness. The heart of a healthy body and family will be overflowing joy, gratitude, thanksgiving. Okay, verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. It's this fiercely resist 
any teaching or belief that moves you or the church away from the supremacy, from the sufficiency, from the deity and ultimate authority of Jesus. Resist it. Resist anything that moves you away from those things. See to it that no one, this is the threat, the Judaizers, the Jewish mystics, um, the, uh, by the way, the Jewish mystics, so you've heard of Kabbalah, which is like a brand of Jewish mysticism, has nothing to do with Jesus. Uh, a lot of people in high places of power, uh, and it's actually a grow, growing, you know, Madonna was one of the head uh, spokespeople for Kabbalah. It is, it is the same, exactly what they were dealing with. It was Kabbalah, then it's Kabbalah now. So when I say Jewish mysticism, I'm not talking about prophetic feely people like us. I'm talking to the choir. So the Jewish mystics were like Kabbalah. So the Judaizers, the Gnostics, the uh, Essenes. So were a, uh, the Essenes were a group of about 5,000 Jews who had a praying prophetic community uh, who decided they were better than everyone else and that um, marriage was bad, women were evil, and that they would just... Uh, crucified the flesh all the time. And so they would literally beat themselves. We have pictures of this going through the Catholic Church. It started with the Essenes, uh, which were headquartered in Colossae. Can you imagine having all this cultic activity and you have a vibrant church and Paul as a father is saying, I'm fighting for you guys to not be moved by any of those things. So see to don't let anyone come to you and preach hollow, deceptive words, all those things I talked about, which are based on human tradition or the elemental spiritual forces, so created things. There were people coming in saying, you need to get into angel worship. You need to do this, and I'm not saying that talking about angels is bad at all. We have many other instances where we're called to understand the, uh, the worship order of things, and angels are a gift given by God to human beings to aid us in this life, and so helpful. You can grab any of Michael Van Vlyman's stuff on the supernatural. It's been so helpful, and I love it, but it's one you can step from that into leaving your focus on Jesus if it, everything should point to Jesus in adoration of Jesus. Every, if you have a spiritual encounter that moves your focus from Jesus onto worship of another being, that is a demonic encounter. So Paul says, just watch it. And so rather than on Christ, so let's move on. I'm gonna close with this and then we'll hit rest of chapter two and chapter three next week. So this is the answer. I love it. So I'm going to hit this, leave it on a good note. Paul goes right back to the gospel. Paul states the threat. He states the problem. He's very intense, but he goes right back to the answer. Let me brag on Jesus. I'm going to remind you guys, how do we get courage in our hearts concerning Jesus? We let truth land. We build a fortress of truth and love on the inside of what's true. And Paul keeps speaking out what's true. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in body form, bodily form. And in Christ, you've been brought to fullness. Guess what? You are complete. The Judaizers were saying, you have to get circumcised. You need to start uh, the ritual purifications. You need to start, you can only eat certain food. Paul's like, no way are we going back there. You are complete. Jesus period. 
You are complete. You don't have to add a bunch of human traditions. It's like you are complete. Can you just say, in Christ, I'm complete. I'm whole. So you are complete. He's the head over every power and authority, including angels. In him you are also circumcised with the circumcision not performed by human hands. He's like, guys, don't let these Judaizers come in and say all the men have to be circumcised. Uh, There's a circumcision way better than that, not made with human hands. It has to do with the heart, the flesh of the heart being cut so that you can enter into union with Christ. It's such good news. And we know circumcision is a picture of the gospel as baptism is. It's a picture of both uh, sanctification and salvation. But your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried. Then he hits baptism. You were buried with him in baptism. You went down into that watery grave, and you came up a new creation. And you didn't have to do anything but die. And now you're a new creation. It is a gift of God. Verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision, uncircumcision of your flesh, this is the key to Colossians 2. God made you alive with Christ. Who did it? Did you do it? God did it. Made you alive with God in Christ. And he goes right back to the gospel. He forgave all of our sins. Speak this over your heart right now. He, he's forgiven my sins. Let's just turn this into prayer. You've canceled the charge of my debt. Lord, you canceled. However however you want to say it in your heart right now, Lord, you canceled. I had this huge debt I could not pay, and you canceled it. Lord, you canceled my debt that I could not pay. It stood against us, and that thing condemned me, but now you've taken it away. It's nailed to the cross. And you disarmed powers and authorities. You made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. We are on this theme Friday night, victory. Victory over every mountain. Victory over every enemy. So he says he's disarmed all authorities. He's, it's like when a, uh, a king would win over a kingdom, would win a battle, they would take all the, the leaders of the opposing army and they would march them through the streets um, and shame them in front. I'm not, I'm not promoting shame-based living, but they would shame them and take away all of their weapons and make them basically grovel and crawl through the dirt as the people, uh, the victors looked on. And God's saying, I did that to demons, to Satan, to all the demonic forces of hell warring against you. I disarmed them, triumphing over. That happened at the cross. It's already happened. They've already been dragged through, they know, but their, their power is in lying to you and I to get us to, um, to move, to shift, to not believe. This is so simple. It's so easy. Christ is supreme. Let's stand together. Thank you, Lord. Aren't you glad Christ is supreme? I just want to tell you guys, part of what I'm doing, this is, uh, there's still a lot of confusion about fivefold ministry in the church and about uh, apostolic and prophetic ministry, about the churches built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. That's because there's a lot of garbage out there and a lot of misuse about those, and it's about 
again, taking the spotlight on, off of Jesus and putting it onto a human being. Part of why I love my being able to function in the apostolic is it, it is about getting the spotlight back on Jesus. It's about healthy foundations. And messages like this, I'm passionate about it, but they're not easy because it is the fear of the Lord and it's convicting. But we need this as much as we need other teachings. We, so we, when we started the 20 stones, our stone number one was Jesus Central. So really all I'm doing for four weeks in a row is Jesus Central, Jesus Central, Jesus Central, Jesus Central. We have to stay Jesus Central. Why? Because all the forces of hell and your flesh are trying to get Jesus from the middle and put something else lesser there. So it's like, I'm not quite sure where to move today. I just feel such a weightiness in the room. It's been there from the very, from the 930 service on. There's just such a weighty, heavy presence of the fear of the Lord and glory in this room. I just think uh, I want to, I want to wrestle for you. The very thing Paul prayed, I, I just ask that you would be filled with courage, unity, and love to not be moved. So I tell you, you can debate all day long on Facebook. You can get mad at people. You can be pro-Trump or pro-whatever you want to be. But at the end of the day, that's not necessarily courage, unity, and love in your heart. Okay, here it is. We're just going to return to Jesus. We're just going to return. As, so tonight starts the Feast of Tabernacles. It's all about returning. It's a pure and simple devotion. So I'm leaving the distractions, Lord. I'm just going to get quiet a minute. Just let's do some, some um, I don't want to use the word business, interaction, holy interaction with the Lord. How can you tabernacle with him this week? Maybe I encourage some of you to go on a seven-day social media fast. You're like, you're you're killing me, Adams. <laughs> exactly. Die. Die to the flesh. Those things feeding your flesh. Let your spirit grow strong. Instead of being busy with a lot of entertainment or meetings, why don't you grab some friends this week and invite them over. Break bread in your house. It's about This is a feast week. I encourage you, take a couple evenings. Get outside of your comfort zone. Go out to eat with some of your friends here. Make some new friends in this place. Share, share a meal together. Just to take about the next two minutes, let's just wait on the Lord. Ask him how we can respond.
Jesus, we return to you. We set our focus right back on you. And the lover of our souls, there's no one like you. You are the express image of your Father. I don't have to guess what Abba is like. Lord, I pray for a release of courage on every heart to withstand the pressure to create a false narrative, to create a false gospel that settles the loud voices of our culture. Lord, you say the cross before us, the world behind us. No turning back. No turning back. And I ask that you'd lead us into simplicity this week, into feasting, to fellowship, into celebrating you in simplicity of heart. Lord, I pray for unity in love for the well. I pray that you would unify our hearts to fear your name. And I pray that love would abound still more and more in this place. Pray for courage, unity, and love under the banner of Jesus to cause thanksgiving to overflow in this place. The mighty name of Jesus all of God's saints said. Amen and amen. Bless you guys. We'll be back next week for Colossians chapter 3.